Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the 18th century, there was a French philosopher named Denis Diderot uh, who lived much of his life in poverty. But all of that changed when he sold his library to Catherine the Great of Russia for a large sum of money. Suddenly, he had uh, lots of wealth, and one thing he did was he purchased an expensive scarlet robe. And you might think he would now be content with all of his wealth and his new robe, but it was not the case. The scarlet robe fell out of place given the other menial possessions Diderot had to his name. And so he felt compelled to make other purchases to match it. He bought a new rug, a better table, a leather chair, even fancy sculptures for his home. Now, this spending spree has led to something we now call the Diderot effect, named after this philosopher. What is the Diderot effect? It's when purchasing a possession has the effect on us of wanting to gain more and more possessions to match the new one. And maybe you've experienced that before. You buy something, and then it only highlights, oh, and now I need something else to go along with it. You purchase a new couch, it makes the rest of the living room out of place. Soon you want to upgrade the entire living room. And so you feel the need to buy other things. And we often have that in life, that insatiable desire to gain more. There's always one more thing to purchase, one more thing we can acquire. Now, what's one of the ways to combat this desire to always gain more? One important thing to do is to practice thankfulness. Instead of focusing on what you don't have, thankfulness forces you to focus on what you do have and to remember who has given you everything you do have, and that's the Lord. And as Christians, thankfulness should characterize not only one weekend, but our entire lives. And that's because when we do take stock of what we have and what God has given us, we can see that we do have so much to thank God for and to praise Him for. Psalm 65 is one psalm that shows that we do have every reason to praise God and to thank Him. This psalm begins by stating uh, that worship will come to our God. It's a fact that worship will come. Praise awaits God in Zion. Vows will be fulfilled to Him. Worshippers will come before Him. And the rest of this psalm shows us the reasons why God will have this worship coming to Him from people like us. That's what we're going to explore as we study Psalm 65 this morning. So that brings us to the sermon theme, which is as follows. God's people have every reason to praise and thank Him. We're going to see that we praise and thank God for His, first of all, His grace, next His greatness, and then His goodness. Now, one concept that students learn in English class is the art of personification. Personification is when an author takes an object or a concept and portrays it with human-like qualities. One example could be 
the door groaned on its hinges. In this example, the door is described with uh, human-like traits, as if it were in physical pain as it opened and closed, uh, calling out for attention, maybe some WD-40. Now, personification like this is useful because it helps us to see objects and concepts in ways we normally would not. It, it brings things to life in, in a unique way. And I say these things because sometimes the Bible uses personification as well. And sometimes it uses personification when it comes to our own sin. You see, in our own thinking, we might tend to view sin merely as a concept or an impersonal force. But God wants us to view sin as something far more sinister than that. And sometimes he uses personification to bring that across to us so that we would see sin in a new light. You see, God wants to, us to view sin as our enemy, as something that's actively hostile towards us and is fighting against us. You see this, for example, in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, which warns us to abstain from sinful desires which are waging war against your soul. Right? That brings sin into a new light. It's not just a desire or a concept, but it's an, an enemy fighting against you. And we see this very thing also in our text from Psalm 65. David writes in verse 3 that iniquities prevail against me. They're fighting against me, and they're winning. This word prevail is the same word used in Exodus 17 to describe Israel's battle against Amalek. It says there, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed in the battle. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. And this is how it sometimes is with the battle against sin. Here it seems the battle is not going well. Iniquities prevail against me. Sin is fighting against me. It's winning this war. In fact, it's overpowering powering me. It's become stronger than I am. You might go through those feelings at times too where sin seems to be winning the battle, where your record of sins just overwhelms you. You've sinned and you know that you can't make it right by your own power. It's as Paul says in Romans 7, the thing I hate, I keep on doing, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And it's true, left to ourselves, we would go down to defeat. But listen to verse 3 again. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. When we were overwhelmed by our sins, God did what we could not do. He himself paid the price for your transgressions. He made atonement, though you could not, by the blood of Jesus Christ in His grace, He has removed our guilt from us. 
What, right, right after crying out in Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? The Apostle Paul turns immediately to God's saving work in Christ. And he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What we could not do through the law. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to take care of them, for a sin offering, to pay for sin. And the effect of this atonement by Christ is that we are brought into fellowship with God. And this is the second aspect of God's grace described in this psalm. Listen to verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Now, let's view these words, first of all, in the context of Old Testament Israel. The Old Testament people of God who lived by faith, they rejoiced when they could come to the temple and worship. They did that several times a year with the feast days, the annual feast days uh, in Israel. It was there at the temple that God lived among his people in a special way. And when those Israelites, when those believing Israelites came to that temple, they saw how the Lord indeed made atonement for their sins. Think of all the sacrifices that went on, the guilt offerings, the sin offerings, the burnt offerings. And so they saw visible pictures of God's forgiveness and grace. But that was not all. At that temple, they could also enjoy fellowship with the Lord. This is where God was. Songs were sung, prayers were offered, rejoicing filled those courts as believing Israelites came to worship. Now, that was Old Testament Israel. And as good as that may have been, I want us to understand that we have something far better than they do. You see, even though God made atonement for them through those sacrifices, pointing ahead to Christ, the Old Testament people of God, they couldn't just walk into that temple itself and stand in the Holy of Holies. God's holiness made that impossible for them. They did not have access at this point in salvation history. And if they were to walk into the Holy of Holies, it would mean instant death. Such is the holiness of God. But what if we were to tell one of those old covenant worshipers that we can do what they could not? That you can come right into the very throne room of God at any time that you wish. Well, I suspect they would do one of two things. Either they would laugh because the idea would sound so outrageous, or they would be horrified, thinking that you were trifling with the holiness of God. And yet, listen to what the New Testament Scriptures tell us we can do through Christ our Lord. It says we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus 
by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Those are the words of Hebrews 10, 19, and 20. By faith, we can come right into the very presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's there, by faith, that we enjoy fellowship with God, not only His grace and forgiveness, but His grace in extending fellowship to us as His children. And we have these blessings of verse 4, and even more so. God has chosen us to receive them. We come to God because He has drawn us to Himself. There it says, Blessed are those whom you have chosen and bring near to dwell in your courts. We would never come on our own. But it's God drawing us to Himself by His, His work of complete grace. And in Christ, we will enjoy the goodness of God's house forever. Not only do we have that future hope, but we also have present help. This is the third aspect of God's grace described in the opening part of this psalm. We have assurance that God hears His people when they call to Him. Listen to verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. God has not only saved His people, He promises to protect them. And He Himself goes to war against our enemies. He sends us help when we call to Him and keep calling out to Him. Does not mean that life will be easy. No, there's still a battle being waged, a battle against sin and the devil. But we can trust that God will protect us. That's part of His grace offered to us in Christ. And so we can trust that He will keep us safe to the end. So these three aspects of God's grace, His forgiveness, His fellowship, and His protection, they give us so many reasons to praise and thank Him. This is who God is for His people. This is who God is for you in Christ. Praise Him for it. Thank Him for it. Not only this weekend, but every day. That brings us to our second point. So we as God's children thank the Lord for His grace. But our text moves on. It says, God is the hope of all the ends of the earth, even the farthest seas, says verse 5. And this is true not only because of God's grace, which is available to every nation under heaven, everyone, no matter what nation they belong to, who, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And this is true not only because of God's grace, He's the hope of all the ends of the earth, but also because of His greatness, His power. You know, we can't really understand how great God is. We would have to be God Himself to understand how great God is, and we, we will never be that. We're too small to comprehend it. And we, would, we are far from God's equal, so we will never really know the extent of God's majesty and power. However, God still communicates something of His greatness to us. He gives us a sense of His eternal power, 
And he often uses lessons from creation to teach us this. And that's the case in Psalm 65 as well. First, there's verse 6, which says, By his strength, God established the mountains, being girded with might. Now, I know there aren't too many mountains here around Winnipeg. I'm sure many of us have traveled maybe to the Rocky Mountains before. Maybe you've gone places like Calgary and explored a place like Banff. And if you haven't, I really encourage you to do that sometime, see God's majesty on display through something like the Rocky Mountains. This past summer, my family and I had the opportunity to drive on the Icefields Parkway from Jasper to Lake Louise, and it was stunning. It added a few hours to our trip, but it was well worth it. It's rated as one of the most scenic drives in the entire world, It's not hard to see why. God's power is on display all around you. Nestled right in the Canadian Rockies, we drove kilometer after kilometer past massive mountain peaks, huge glaciers, and beautiful forests. All of that beauty and majesty in creation has been established by the power of our God. It's meant to make us not worship creation, but to worship the Creator who made it all by His his power, His handiwork, His wisdom. Well, that's the mountains. Verse 7 then switches to another aspect of God's creation, the oceans and seas. And in this, we can include large uh, large lakes close to home, like Lake Manitoba and Lake Winnipeg. It says here in Psalm 65, God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of of their waves. One of the most powerful forces on earth is the power of water. If you've ever been on a boat out on the water when a windstorm hits, you know how dangerous it can be, how hard it can be to get back to shore. And if you were to ever go into the ocean and play in large waves, you know, even the strongest people need to be careful playing in those large ocean waves. They can easily toss people like rag dolls, pummel them under the water without mercy. Here it says, God, by His power, quiet the ocean waves to a mere ripple. Tumultuous waters become clear as glass at His direction. Verse 7 then extends that image to the roaring of the nations. See, in Scripture, the seas are often used to symbolize the turmoil of this world, the turmoil of the nations. Just think of Revelation 13, where the beast, who represents anti-Christian governments, it arises out of the sea. If there's anything more tumultuous than the ocean, it's the nations of the earth. See, there's always something or some country threatening to disturb the peace of the nations. There's constant turmoil in this world. Just look at how quickly war is broken out between Gaza and Israel. And this is on top of the ongoing war in Ukraine, continuing threatening from China over Taiwan, saber-rattling and rocket launches by North Korea, and it goes on and on. 
There's always some grave threat arising out of the nations of the earth. Left to themselves, humans would only end up in complete self-destruction. If it were up to us, we would have been extinct long ago. But God is in control, and He allows life to go on. He quiets the roarings of the nations. As the Spirit says in Psalm 46, the Lord makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is in control. That's His power. That gives you further reason to thank God and praise Him every day. Also, as you see the turmoil on this earth, And this is especially true given how the Lord uses His power. Now, earlier I emphasized that we cannot comprehend God's greatness, and God, whoever teaches us something of it through His creation. But think now of this. God used His power not only to establish creation, uses it not only to quiet creation, but he used his power to join himself to his own creation. That's what the Son of God did. That's especially how God's power is shown, joining himself, the infinite God, to his own creation. The Son of God did this in the incarnation when he joined a human nature to his divine being. And we see God's Son reveal Himself in this way through the Gospels. Just think of those words again from verse 7. God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their ways. I'm sure the children can think of a time when our Lord Jesus Christ did this on the earth. At one point, Jesus and His disciples traveled by boat on the Sea of Galilee. A huge windstorm arose. Waves tossed the boat to and fro. The disciples could not row to shore Fearing for their own lives, they called up, called out to the Lord Jesus. When he awoke, what did Christ do? He rebuked the wind and the waves, calling out, Quiet, be still. And he did what God does in verse 7. He stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, a perfect display of the power of God in and through Jesus Christ. That's because the Son of God is both true man and true God. And isn't that wonderful how God uses His power in coming to us as a man, joining Himself to His own creation to save you from your sins? That is the power of God. So remember to praise and thank God for these things beyond anything we could imagine beyond anything we deserved. But God did it for His glory and our good. That brings us to our last point. Psalm 65 ends with a section that actually first led me to choose this text for Thanksgiving weekend. It's a fitting section to reflect on for Thanksgiving. And the picture described here in the last part of our text is one of overflowing abundance. Listen to some of the words here. 
You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. You water its furrows abundantly. You crown the air with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Now, earlier in the sermon, I talked about personification when it came to sin, but here there's personification when it comes to creation. Listen to the descriptions here. Meadows clothing themselves with grazing sheep. There's so many sheep, they look like they're wearing clothes. Valleys and hills full of food, and so they sing together with joy. It's an overflowing, rich uh, display of God's uh, generosity. It's all because of God's goodness. And here we get a, a sense of how God is the God of life, a God of generosity and giving. Now, this was a message, first of all, to Old Testament Israel. And the message also to them is this, Israel, why would you chase after uh, the gods of the nations, a fertility god like Baal? Why would you put your hope in Asherah to give you what you want? See how the Lord is generous and good. Put your hope in Him, in Him alone. Your cup overflows in Him. God is the one who provides for His people. And actually, the form of the verbs in this section emphasize God's active involvement to bring all of this about. See, these things don't just happen by creation's own power. Rain doesn't water the earth all on its own. Fields don't grow crops all by themselves. God gives these things. So He calls us also to put our trust ultimately in Him. Without His blessing, all our care and labor will amount to nothing. But with His blessing, we receive gift upon gift. And this calls us to praise and thank Him for His goodness. You know, through His power and His generosity, some farmers here in Manitoba had a record year with record crops. A direct gift of God. Now, at the same time, not everyone experienced that picture. Some crops were hit really hard by various weather problems. Some experienced extensive drought. Others were wiped out by bad storms like hail. Besides all that, over the past years, I'm sure you've all noticed food prices rising again. Maybe you've even had to change your eating habits quite substantially to make it work. Yet even when we go through those things, Every bite of food we enjoy comes from the Lord. And not only that, we can be sure that any time of scarcity we experience in this life will be replaced with overflowing abundance in eternal life. That's because part of the, the curse on creation was that food would be harder to grow. That's what happened in the fall into sin. By the sweat of our brow, humans would eat food. That's what the Lord told us. 
But that curse on creation is removed through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. When He returns, the groaning of this world will come to an end, and all suffering will be over for God's people. We can be sure that this will come. It's His promise. And how important it is to take time to praise God for this and to thank Him for it. Put our focus back on these wonderful gifts of God. You see, one of the ways our sinful hearts express themselves is through an ungrateful life. Romans 1 says that although sinful humans can see God's power clearly from creation, they do not honor Him as God, nor do they give thanks to Him. Failing to give God glory, failing to thank Him, are two expressions of unbelief in our sinful hearts. Beloved, we've been redeemed by Christ. We have the light of God's Word. We've been given new hearts by the Spirit. And one of the most important ways to express the new heart we've been given by the Spirit, it's actually not difficult. Simply to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for all your gifts. Not only do we aim to thank Him with our mouths, but we aim to thank Him with our entire life, living a life pleasing to Him in all things. Amen. Let's now sing together in response from that psalm, Psalm 65, stanzas 5 and 6.